Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Habakkuk 2, 1 through 4. This is the word of God. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us, that we can gather together, that we can worship, that we can learn again what it means to live by faith. We ask, Lord, that in this time we will be a people focused on your word, focused on your message from Habakkuk today, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Lars began last week for us a study in the book of Habakkuk. Now, the older Habakkuk in his day would have looked at his own people, the people of Judah, and seen a people who were imminently facing destruction. Destruction at the hands of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Habakkuk could see that God was now using the Babylonians to bring punishment to Israel, to Judah, for its own sins. And through that, Habakkuk is asking God, why? Why would you allow the Neo-Babylonian Empire, to bring such suffering and pain to the people of Judah, your own people. And God has an answer for that. That's this question that Habakkuk is struggling with. Now, if you will, for just a moment, imagine with me what it must have been like for a young Habakkuk. Perhaps you can imagine yourself as a school chum of Habakkuk in ancient Judah. And if you were, you may have gone to school. You would have had a class in geography. Your class in geography would have told you about the land of Israel and Judah, that it lay on the western edge of what's called the Fertile Crescent. And as you move north and to the east, you would have come up to the Zagros Mountains and then south again down the Tigris and Euphrates River, which is a great fertile land where the ancient Babylonian Empire had been. And between Israel on the southwest and Babylon on the southeast lay the great Arabian Desert. A desert that people couldn't cross without great effort, without great danger. A desert that had no natural resources except some gooey black stuff that had no useful purpose. So when you've learned about this fertile crescent, in history class you'd have learned about the ancient Babylonian Empire, the ancient empire under Hammurabi that gave the great law code, but that empire had suffered its own demise at the hands of the Assyrians sometime later. So you would have learned about Sargon the Great, who led the great Assyrian Empire, and other empires like the Akkadians in between, the Hittites in in, uh, what is modern-day Turkey. You would have learned about these great kingdoms, that they rise and that they fall. Then you perhaps would have studied more recent history and learned about your own people, 
how Abraham himself came from Haran, which is right at the top of that boomerang shape of the Fertile Crescent, that God called Abraham south and made a covenant with him, brought him to the land of Israel and said, this is going to be your land and you're going to be the father of a great nation, a great people. And that through your son Isaac and his son Jacob and then Israel, that you would then move your people down south into Egypt, the great kingdoms of Egypt. But that God would bring you out of that land and that God brought us into the land of Israel again and there built a great nation under the kingdom of David and then under Solomon. And in history class, Habakkuk would have learned that the great kingdom that ended at Solomon's life was uh, divided. At the end of uh, Solomon's reign, it was in fact very difficult. The northern tribes were resentful that the southern kingdom of Judah, the southern area of Judah, had Jerusalem and the temple was there. And that Jerusalem was seen as the focus of Yahweh worship. And so at the death of Solomon, the Israelites in the north separated from Judah in the south. And now Habakkuk learned there was two kingdoms. And he would have learned about the northern kingdom being taken by the Assyrians about 60 years prior. That Israel was now gone, and all that remained was his people and his land of Judah and Jerusalem. And he would have asked his teacher, why would God have allowed the Assyrians to take away the kingdom of Israel? And his teacher would have looked at him and said, well, it's because the Israelites in the north, our northern brothers, were very sinful. They were a people that exploited the poor. They were a people in which there was no justice in the kingdom. It had a string of evil kings only. In literature class, they would have read the books of Kings and seen that there was only evil kings in the northern kingdom throughout. And for that reason, God said in the prophets, he will bring the Assyrians down and crush Israel and carry them away. And he did in the year 722. And Habakkuk would have asked, why would God allow this? His teacher said, because of their sin. And then Habakkuk perhaps would have looked at his own life, his own community, his own people, and asked, how are we any different from the Assyrians? And his teacher would have had nothing to say. We're not different. You see, Habakkuk probably grew up during the time of King Manasseh in Judah. Manasseh reigned for 50 years and was an evil king. And under Manasseh's reign, the land of Judah did suffer great injustice. They did suffer great exploitation to where the rich took from the poor and exploited them in many ways. And Habakkuk, when he writes this prophecy, as we saw last week with Lars, writes and asks God, why don't you now bring judgment on those who are exploiting the poor, those who are exploiting justice, those who are doing such evil in the land and stealing, theft, all of this going on. God, it's now time for you to judge them. And then we saw Lars explain, as God did to Habakkuk, I will do that. So in verses, chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, we have Habakkuk's question. And in that verse, he uses a few words you may know. First he says in chapter 1, verse 1, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you not hear? Or cry to you, violence and you will not save? That's the great question. The word violence there is the Hebrew word Hamas. And you all know the word Hamas. The terrorist organization that wreaks violence in the Middle East. That's the same word used there. And God gives an answer in verses 5 and following through verse 11. And he says, I'm going to bring the Chaldeans the Neo-Babylonian kingdom, a new kingdom that's going to rise from the Tigris and Euphrates, and it's going to come and punish Judah. And to that 
Habakkuk is puzzled. Why would you use an evil kingdom like that to punish us? That's overdoing it. So Habakkuk wanted some justice for his people, but he didn't expect that God would go to such great lengths to destroy the land. And so Habakkuk is puzzled by that and cries out to God, beginning in verse uh, 12, how can you do that, O God? That doesn't seem to be in line with your character. We come to chapter 2, verse 1, and we see these words of Habakkuk. He says in verse 1, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on a tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on the tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now Habakkuk is told by God, judgment is coming. Habakkuk asks why, and God says, it will come, but wait for it. Habakkuk then is puzzled. He says, I'm going to stand here. I've asked God, why are you doing this? And I'm going to stand here on my watch and wait for God to give an answer. And there's three things we see about Habakkuk's life at this point, which shows that he did live a life of faith. The first is that he was obedient. He says in verse 1, I will take my stand at my watch post. He's got a place to be, and it's on his watch post. Now, you know what a sentry is. A sentry, a guard is somebody who's told, your job is to stand on this watch post and watch and look out to make sure that when the enemy comes, we're prepared. Or if friendly people are coming or our own army, we can see them in advance. A sentry's job is to be on his post. And Habakkuk says, that's my job. I'm going to be the sentry watching on my post to see what God is going to do next. Now, as a sentry, your job is to stand your post, to stay your post. Now, there's a lot of sentries, I'm sure, throughout time uh, who have thought, perhaps this isn't necessary, or I'm a little bit tired. There is, during the Civil War, uh, one particular story of a man named William Scott, who was called the sleeping sentry. He was asleep on his post, and when discovered, he was then brought. Trial was held the next morning. He was judged and prepared for execution. But Abraham Lincoln intervened early in the war, granted pardon, and he was saved from it. But the word went out that don't expect that pardon will come always. Your job as a sentry is to guard your post. So a sentry's job is to be on his post, and that's what Habakkuk is doing. But what's a sentry? You can't say that I'm tired or I don't feel like this is necessary. I can see nothing is coming, so I'm just going to step down and I'm going to take my nap. At the court-martial, you would be then asked, why did you do that? And you can't say, well, I was tired, or I had already done enough, or I didn't see anything coming. You'd be immediately told you're guilty. Now, we do that in our spiritual lives. As believers, we are given responsibilities. As Habakkuk was, there's a sentry job that we have. We, too, are to be on our watch, to be on our post. And we can't say to God, well, I'm just not getting anything out of it. So I'm going to lay out a little bit. And I feel like all of us, me, and I'm sure many of you, feel the same way at different times in life. You feel like, I've done my job, I've done enough, I can lay out a little bit. I can throttle back some and give some more me time to myself. And we're tempted to do that. But God, of course, is always telling us we have responsibility, and so it's our job to be on the watch 
and to be obedient in our call. So we can't say we're just going to lay out. We can't just use that as an excuse. We have a job. And that's what Habakkuk is doing here. He's standing his watch, making sure that he's looking out for what God's answer will be when it comes. And so the first thing we see of, of Habakkuk is he's obedient. Secondly, we see that he's waiting expectantly. He's looking for God to give an answer. As we read this passage, we see again, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. He's looking out knowing an answer is coming. And he's doing so, he says, from the watchtower. And the watchtower he describes as a tower that all ancient cities had, where you could stand on the corner walls of the city and look out and see what's coming. Habakkuk is expecting God to bring an answer. And so he's waiting for God, and he's going to expect that God does that. But God, of course, says, the answer's coming, but you're going to have to wait for it. The answer's coming, but it's not coming immediately. And so we read on. God says, and the Lord answered me, write the vision and make it plain on the tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Waiting patiently is the hardest thing we do when we go through struggles of life, when we go through suffering in life, when we don't know exactly why things are going the way they are in our world whether it's the world at large, whether it's our small world of our family or the small world in our own heart. We don't know why things happen the way they do. And it's easy for us to become impatient with God. Why can't God simply just give us the help we need? Give me the job that I need. Give me the pay raise that would help me meet my expenses. Give me the health that I need so I can do good work and serve. Why won't God just step in and help me out? And we all feel this many times, and Habakkuk, I'm sure, is wondering, why does God not just fix the suffering here in the right measure? Habakkuk waits patiently. God tells him, wait for it, it's coming. Now, the reason we become impatient is because we lack humility. On the one hand, James tells us that because we're proud, we think that everything should go our way all the time. And instead, we have to wait in humility. James talks about the fact that we have to wait. We say that we're going to go do these things. We're going to go to a city. We're going to make money. We're going to have this life. And God says, what? You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You can't presume on God. The Latin phrase, Deo Valente, in old ancient, not ancient, but uh, 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 Puritan writings, they would often put DV at the end of a prayer. DV, Deo Valente, if God wills. And we can all talk about what we're going to do, how we're going to live our life, how it's going to be. But it's always... Deo volente, if God wills, because we know that we are not omniscient, that God is, that he has a plan that may di be different from ours. And so we have to depend on God. We have to know that our plans may be altered by the plan that God has. And Habakkuk is learning that. Deo volente, if God wills. Humility is important. But a second thing that patience does, and this is the hardest thing for us, is to think about how when suffering comes into our life, we don't normally say, well, this is a good thing, because now I can see how God is going to shape me into the person that he's called me to be. Very few of us go into moments of, of time of suffering and thinking it's a good thing. But that's what James says, because the, the, the suffering of life, the trials of life, bring out character in you. That patience produces character, and character, hope, Paul says. These are the things that suffering does for us. It builds us. And so when we go through times like Habakkuk is... 
we need to learn how to use those times in our life to build character, to find a way of making us stronger in who we are. And it's never pleasant to do that, but many of us have been through times in life where we can now look back and say, yeah, I can see now how God was working in my life. I can see now how God strengthened me through that, and in fact is now giving me something more of a, a different shape to my character that I can now use in the ministries that I do have. And so those are the things we learn from Habakkuk as he waits. This is a demonstration of what Habakkuk 2, 4 talks about in faith. Habakkuk is being faithful by being obedient, by looking to God in expectation, by being patient as he waits for God's answer. This is the demonstration of Habakkuk's faith. So as we look now at verses 4 and 5, Behold, his soul is puffed up. Now this is speaking of uh, those who are pride. His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. That's corruption. But the righteous shall live by faith. And we'll come back to that. But continue on with, the soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. This is God saying that the Neo-Babylonians are a people who are prideful, who are corrupt, who are arrogant, who are greedy, who are crushing others, who are sucking up all the lands and all the peoples all across the Fertile Crescent, they're now conquering or will conquer all those other nations, and that judgment will come to Judah. Those are the people who are rebelling. Those are the people who are living outside of what God has ordained. But Habakkuk can look to his own people, their own Torah, the book of Deuteronomy, and see that there's a law we should be living by. Deuteronomy 28 and 29 says, if you live this way, if you live in faithfulness, if you obey, then God's blessings will come. But if you're rebellious, if you don't live faithfully, if you're arrogant and perverse and corrupt and prideful, then judgment comes. And so God makes it quite easy and quite plain which side we should, uh, we should be living on. And Habakkuk sees that. And so God tells him, but the just shall live by faith. Now those words are perhaps the most profound in all of Scripture. Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17, and again in Galatians 3, verses 10 and 11, and the writer of Hebrews does in Hebrews chapter 10. And in each place, there's something of a commentary on what these words mean. The just shall live by faith. Now, in the text of Habakkuk, there's only three words used in Hebrew. In English, we use six, the just shall live by faith. Hebrew does more with each word. And so there's only three Hebrew words. Tzaddik is the first word, the just, the righteous. By faith, enuma, by faith, it says, shall live. And each of these three places where it's used in the New Testament provides something of an explanation of what it means. And so you think, first about what are the just? Who are the just? What does it mean to be somebody who's justified? Those are the questions that we have here. It was Martin Luther who really first felt the weight of what these words meant. And Martin Luther, as we saw just three years ago, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, 
when on October 31st, 1517, Luther nailed the 95 Thesis on the church door at Wittenberg, Luther did so saying that I've thought hard about what Scripture says, and I have questions for the church, I have questions for the Pope, and I'm challenging him to debate what these Scripture verses say and what they mean. And one key verse was Habakkuk 2.4, and these three places in the New Testament where it's used. Now, how did Luther get to that point? Luther was a man who felt the weight of his own sin. Luther was a man who felt the burden of what sin was in his life. He was a man who grew up with the theology of the Middle e medieval church. The medieval church had really cast its lot with the idea that the only way to gain God's salvation was to earn it by works. You had to do enough good works to earn your salvation. And so Luther tried, and he tried hard. In fact, he felt the weight of his own sin as he examined his own heart so deeply that he became an Augustinian monk, believing that if he committed himself 100% fully to God, he could find a way out of his sin. He could find forgiveness for his sins. And so Luther becomes a monk. And now he's devoting his entire life, entire day, to reading Scripture and to praying and to doing absolution and to, to serving others and charity and all the things that were prescribed for him to earn salvation, but he still felt like that can't be enough because I know the depths of my own depravity. I know my own heart, Luther said. And so Luther felt this. A time came when he decided that he would go to Rome. And as he made his way to Rome, he found himself on the road in Bologna and became very, very ill, nearly to the point of death. And he was cared for by monks in that village. And while there, he sensed that death may be imminent. He may not have long to live. And if I die right now in Bologna, I don't see how God can accept me based on who I am. Luther felt his own sin so deeply that he knew God couldn't accept him. When he finally recovered and got better, he made his way to Rome. And when he got to Rome, he did what he thought he could do there, uh, which was go to the church, which called uh, still St. John Lateran. Now, if you've been to Rome, you know it's St. John Ladder, and there's a great basilica there, an arch basilica, a beautiful basilica. But nearby it are what they claim to be the steps of Pilate. And they call it now a, a, a Scala Santa, the Holy Steps. And these are steps believed to be the steps that Jesus walked when he walked up to the Praetorium of Pilate and met with Pilate, as John tells us. And if you look at these steps, they say you can see the blood drops of Jesus on these steps as he walks up. They claim now that Constantine's mother, Helena, brought these steps from Jerusalem and brought them to Rome now where they reside. And the Pope said that if you crawl on your knees up these steps and pray on each step, that will be an absolution for you. And so Luther came to Rome to do that. People do that today. Even today in Rome, with social distancing, they're crawling on their knees up these steps, seeking God's favor. And so Luther got on his knees, and he crawled up on one step. There's about 30 steps, and he said a prayer. And then he crawled up the next step on his knees, and he said another prayer. And as he's going up the steps, he's saying these prayers, asking for forgiveness, when these same words from Habakkuk 2.4 come to his mind again, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. He goes up another step. The just shall live by faith. And while he's on these steps, his son Paul tells us, Martin Luther had that sense, that revelation, that that was the key 
to salvation. It wasn't crawling up these steps on my knees, begging God's forgiveness by doing good works, earning it in this way. It was instead, the just shall live by faith. I will live by faith. And so Luther steps up from the steps, he walks down, and he then goes back to Erfurt, where he came from, and began thinking about this, and soon the Reformation began. Luther realized there was something important about this. Now, as we think about these words, we can think about the words of Paul in Romans. In Romans chapter 1, Romans gives us some commentary on what it means to be the just. Tzadik. In the Greek, it's dikaiosune, the righteous one. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He thinks about that. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And as he reads these words, he's thinking, because now he's not reading these words in English, he's reading these words in Greek. Do you know that this doctrine that became the cornerstone of Catholic theology came not because they were reading the original Greek text, as Martin Luther now was, but they were reading the Latin text. Jerome had translated the scriptures into Latin for the Roman world, and the Roman world relied on the Latin translation. And the Latin word for justify, or for dikaiosine here, is the Latin word justificare. And that's where we get our English word justification, just, just means righteous. Ficare is a Latin word, the Latin uh, infinitive, to make. Ficare, to make, F-A-C, fact, like in manufacture, you make with your hands. And so justificare means to be made righteous. To be made righteous. Not to be declared righteous as dikaiosine means, which is a different meaning. But to be made righteous, and Luther could look to his own heart and know that God had not made him righteous. He could see that he's not righteous in his own heart. He knew it wasn't there. All of us, I think, on the outside can give some appearance. Perhaps on Sunday morning it's easier. That we are a good person, that we are a righteous person. But Luther always looked at his own heart and knew that deep within he wasn't. He knew he had not been made righteous. But in the Greek he sees it means declare righteous. God has now given us a standing we didn't have before. That we are now righteous before God. And he could see that we're made righteous. And so Romans helps, Paul, helps Luther understand that the just person is one who's declared righteous. Tzadik, dikaiosine, we're, made, we're declared righteous in God, not made righteous by our works. That's the first thing that Luther realizes. Then he looks at the word faith. In Hebrew, enuma, when you come to the Greek faith, pistis, we know the word faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is a great hall of faith, those who have lived by faith. But before Hebrews 11 begins, in Hebrews chapter 10, we have these words where the writer writes, beginning in verse 35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Christ is coming, as Habakkuk learned. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Faith, Hebrews tells us, is a person who, who's committed. There's a sense that I'm going to stay with this faith. And so chapter 11 begins that great hall of faith. 
And we see it beginning in, in verse uh, 3. Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. Abraham obey, obeyed God. And it gives many reasons why Abraham was faithful. Moses, when he was born, he was hid, but he took his people out of the land of Egypt. And it goes through this great hall of faith talking about those Old Testament saints who live by faith. Faith we think of in three ways. Uh, the first is uh, the, the Latin word notia. It's a knowledge. It requires some knowledge. We have to know about God. We have to know about what Christ did. That's the knowledge side of it. Now you can ask an atheist if they know Christ. You will say, yeah, I know who Jesus was. I've read the Gospels or I've heard the stories. I don't believe them, but I've read them. So I know who Jesus is. That's kind of a, a notia. That's a notion. I have a notion of it. The second word is a census. The second element of faith is to give assent to it, to say not only do I know it, but I also believe it. I'm assenting to its truthfulness. I'm saying that what Christ did is true. And so I'm agreeing not only that Jesus lived and died for my sins, but I'm saying that it's true. And many believe that you can simply say those words, I believe Jesus died for my sins, and at that moment you're saved forever and nothing will take you from God's hand. But there's a third element of faith that really develops it. And it's a Latin word, fiducia. We get our word fiduciary from it. And that's somebody who trusts, who commits, who stays with it. The justified person by faith is one who not only has knowledge of its truth and a sense to it, but also lives by it, is faithful to it. And we stay faithful to it. And so faith is not simply having a moment of faith, but it's to live faithfully. And that's what Habakkuk is getting at in chapter 2, verse 4. The Judeans, like the Israelites before them, had ceased living faithfully before God. They had now lived for themselves. They had rejected that. And even in Judah, as they could smell, smell the embers of, of the north burning, they were rejecting God. They had left God's ways and were pursuing their own. And so faith in Habakkuk is to live faithfully, to stay true to what God has called us to be. And so the book of Hebrews gives us that sense. And we come to Galatians chapter 3 also. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Remember, Paul writes to the Galatians. And to the Galatians, he says, you know, you've come a long way. But he gives them instruction on how to live, ethics of life, the Holy Spirit, what it means to be justified by faith. And in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul confronts the church who's now fallen away. Remember in verse uh, 1, it says, How quickly you've deserted what I gave you, the gospel. And verse 10, chapter 3, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. You live your life in faithfulness, by faith in God, by faithfulness to God. And so Paul to the Galatian churches is reminding them that faith is a lifestyle. It's living that way. And in the Hebrew, the word therefore living is yiye, which we think scholars believe the word Yahweh comes from. Yiye, Yahweh, the living one. The just shall live by faith. That living, that yiye, is your life. 
It's a way of living. Yahweh himself, for Habakkuk, is the chief life giver. And so these are the words that we see. This living by faith becomes central to what Habakkuk is talking about. Now Habakkuk comes now to uh, chapter 2, verse 6 through 20. And God pronounces five woes. The word woe here is the Hebrew word hoi. Maybe you've heard the Jewish Yiddish word oi, oi vei, oi vimir. That sense of woe, woe is me. That's the word that we use. Some of you may have said oi. Well, you know a little bit of Hebrew. You didn't then, now you know you know it. But that's what Habakkuk is saying. Oi, woe. Woe is coming on the Babylonians for their sin. Now there's five woes here. And we'll go through these rather quickly. They're, they're clear. Well, they're not clear. Let me just say this. If you've read Habakkuk, uh, it's laid out in poetry. And poetry is intentionally hard to read because the poet is trying to make you slow down and think about it. My dogs have feeding bowls, and I've got, well, I've got board, I'm bordering dogs for my kids, so I've got four dogs now. But we have two dogs that eat slowly, and they get one open bowl. We have other dogs that eat very quickly, and so we have these bowls. Do you have these bowls with the spirals in them? So the dogs have to work hard to get their food. And it takes them more time to eat. And that's what Habakkuk's doing in this poetry. It's written in such a way that it wants you to slow down. And the Hebrew words here are very compact, and that's why there's differences in our translations, because in translating it can be difficult. And so he's writing it in such a way to slow us down. So we'll go through this slowly, but it'll be made plain. First, chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. He writes, a woe to the extortioner. Now, in each of these five woes, there are three verses. And in each of the three verses, there are three elements to it. There is the woe, there's a threat, and there's a reason. There's the woe, the warning of what you're doing wrong. There's a threat that judgment is coming, and there's a reason given. Uh, Richard Patterson, who was a professor of mine many years ago, wrote a commentary that explained this, and many others have picked it up. There's a woe, there's a threat, there's a reason. So we'll see that in each place. And what has happened with this book of Habakkuk to show that it's really an application for us today is to see that uh, it, it really does apply. What God is warning the Babylonians against, judging them for, the same thing we see now. Habakkuk was written perhaps the year 630. 500 years later, the Dead Sea Scroll community would write. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, Cave 1, one of the first scrolls found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, besides the great Isaiah Scrolls, was a book called the Pesher Habakkuk. Pesher is a commentary on Habakkuk, Habakkuk, Habakkuk. It's a commentary in which the Dead Sea community said that God is going to bring its judgment not on, from the Babylonians on its people. They made a modern application of it and applied it to what they called the Katim, which is the Romans. God will judge the Romans for the Romans' oppression of the Judeans, you see. And so the Dead Sea community writes a commentary, and even our translations, our understanding of the Hebrew, has been in some places modified by what the Dead Sea community uh, shows us in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so they're using it in a modern way. And I think we can do the same thing. We can look at these woes and say, you know what, any nation that does what Babylon did will be judged by God in the same way. So the first is extortion. Verse 6 begins, and this is sort of a, an introduction. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him, all these being 
the nations oppressed by Babylon. They will taunt against him, against Babylon, with scoffing and riddles, and say to him, say to Babylon, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. That's theft. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. That's extortion. God gives us woe. And these words, how long, for how long, are kind of inserted there, as we saw from chapter 1, inserted there as sort of an exclamation in between. Habakkuk is still so puzzled by how long, God. But if we take those out, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own and loads himself with pledges. We see the theft and we see the extortion. The Babylonians were taking what is not their own and loads himself with pledges is to take and foreclose on people, to take their property and say, I'll give it back to you at some point, but to not do that, to extort them in some way. And so the same sort of sins that Habakkuk saw in Judah, he now sees with these people. And will not debtors, and this is now in verse 7, so we see now uh, this, will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. There's a threat. To the Babylonians, he says, the people that you're stealing from, the people you're extorting from, you're exploiting, they will be the ones who will come against you. And verse 8 gives a reason. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. There we see the reason. Because you've done that, you will suffer the same judgment. And so the warning here is, if you make your wealth, if you make your life by exploiting and stealing from others, by extorting others, that same judgment in like kind will come against you. It's a warning to all of us in our life, in our business practices, to live in such a way that we do things the right way, the fair way, and not by theft. The second woe, verses 9 through 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high. So we see here the woe is to the greedy and to the arrogant. Evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, like an eagle sets his nest on high for safety, but also out of arrogance, believing that I'm so high, nothing can touch me. And so the warning here, the woe to the Babylonians is, you think you're so high that you can't be touched. Woe to you in believing that. Because a hand of God can reach you wherever you are. Verse 10, you have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, so there's a threat. Cutting off many peoples, this idea of shortchanging, of cutting, of cheating, of killing. All of that's a part of this. And so there's more economic and personal exploitation being condemned here. Verse 11, we see the reason. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. If the house being built is viewed as a kingdom or as a realm, and it is, then the stone or the, the beam, the woodwork, are the people of that house or the people of that kingdom. And it's those people that will be crying out judgment against you. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. And so judgment will come from those, he says to the Babylonians, those you've exploited. The third woe, verse 12 to 14, woe to those who build on bloodshed. Now, this third woe is perhaps the most central, as we'll see. So uh, listen carefully here. 
Verse 12, Woe to him who builds a town with the blood and founds a city on iniquity. So we see again the same idea. Babylon is building its city on blood and founds its city on iniquity. It's building by killing. It's building by stealing. Its city is its realm. So there we see the woe. Verse 13, Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? So here's the punishment. Now what he means by that is, is it not from the Lord of hosts? The Lord of hosts, Yahweh Shabbat, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of, the, the, the Lord of the armies, the hosts of heaven, the armies of God. And so now Habakkuk is bringing in this idea that God himself leads an army that will judge your army, Babylon. And when it does... All of the work that you've done will be for the fire. All the life you've spent building and collecting and, and, and gathering will be for the fire. And that's what he's meaning here. Is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire? Is that what we work for? Merely to gain that which will end up in the fire? And nations weary themselves for nothing. They work, they conquer, they expand for nothing. It becomes nothing. That's the threat. But verse 14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And here's the reason, because it will all end. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The word knowledge is a relational word. We know God. To know God is to be in a relationship with Him. So we know God. We know of the glory of the Lord. The word glory, the kavod of God, the, 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 the massiveness of God, the presence of God, that is what reigns in the end. That is what rules. That is what conquers in the end. That's who has the last word. As the waters cover the sea worldwide, God's glory will reign. Now, there's these three verses, but there's a pattern here that's developed through what's called the Book of the Twelve. In the Jewish Bible they have what they call the Book of the Twelve, which includes the Twelve Minor Prophets. And so the Twelve Minor Prophets are the Book of the Twelve, and they're contained on one scroll. And so one scroll contains these twelve letters, including Habakkuk, which is the eighth one. But if you look at this Book of the Twelve, you will see a pattern there. There's a pattern of sin and punishment and renewal. And that's a pattern illustrated in these verses. Again, verse 11, there's sin. The person, the kingdom, whoever that builds and founds their life, their city on iniquity, on blood. There's a sin. Punishment comes. The Lord of hosts will bring judgment by fire. But renewal comes. And that's the promise. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge and glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The glory of God, like we saw in Exodus the glory of the cloud, the presence of God in the cloud by day and the fire by night. That's God reigning. And we see that through all of this, the purpose of God is to renew. The promise of God in the Old Testament is that God will reign in the end and renew. And that we see fulfilled in Christ. There is a renewal. There's sin, there's punishment, and there's renewal. The fourth woe to the drunken arrogant, woe to him that makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze on their nakedness. So it sounds like a college frat party here. And that's what the Babylonians were doing. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. 
We'll see your own nakedness and see your uncircumcision. In other words, he's saying, we will see you Babylonians that you're not part of the covenant people. You're not part of God's people. The cup in the right, in the Lord's right hand, that's his power, will come around you and utter shame will come upon your glory. That's the threat. You will come to nothing. So your arrogance, your abuse, your exploitation will bring utter shame and judgment. Verse 17, the violence done in Lebanon. As the Babylonians conquered, they destroyed the great lands of Lebanon, the great cedars, the forest. So he says, the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, those people. So the animals and their habitat was destroyed. For the blood of man and violence on the earth, the cities and all who dwell on them. Your violence will bring your judgment, he says. That's the fourth woe. Then we come to the fifth woe about idolatry. Verse 18, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. What can you get from your idols? You made it yourself. What can it do for you? It's a teacher of lies. It can do nothing. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. He makes these speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! And to a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? He says you can take your idols. You can make them of silver or gold or whatever you want. You can you be as artistic as you can be, and still you can't say, arise, awake, do anything. It's deaf and it's dumb. It can't speak. It can't answer. It can't teach. It can't do anything for you. To the idolaters, behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. Now, verse 20 ends this. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And here's your last Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for silent is the Hebrew word hus. Onom Can you say that word with me? Onomatopoeic. Like bang is the sound of a bang. Hus is the word of hush. Silent. Keep silent and I know that I'm God. The word silent here is to just listen. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple, the temple in heaven. Let all the earth keep silence before him. When we're tempted to worry, when we're tempted to drop out of the game because of our disconnect, because of our suffering, when we're tempted to give up on it, when we're tempted to walk away in anger because we don't feel like God is on our side, what God is telling us here through Habakkuk is to be silent, to hush, to give it a moment, to be silent, to think about the certainty that God has been for us in the past. Life is very uncertain. We feel the uncertainty of it. We feel the burden of it, not knowing how God is going to carry us through, whether or not we can make it. So God says, hush. Know that he's on the throne. And in moments of uncertainty, when we feel like our life is being destabilized, about to collapse, we need to hush. Think back to the words of Habakkuk 2, 4, the just shall live by faith. That's where our certainty comes from, that we know that we will live by faith. That's our certainty. And so in moments of uncertainty, anchor ourselves in that. The just shall live by faith, Habakkuk says. The just shall live by faith, Paul says twice. The just shall live by faith, Hebrews says. That's our anchor. And why? Because that's how 
we will know that we're God's because of our faithfulness. Let's pray. Our Father, as we see these words of Habakkuk, we know that in our own struggles of life, we're tempted to not obey, to fall out, to not persevere, to not be patient, to do what many others have done, and that's to give up when we feel like it's just not giving us as much as we're giving it. But we know, Lord, that you've given everything so that our sins can be forgiven, so that we can enjoy a place of justification with you. And so we ask that you would give us a strength, help each of us to encourage one another to live constantly, faithfully, do our fiduciary responsibilities and remain faithful no matter what circumstances befall us, knowing that the just shall live by faith. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.